Welcome to Behave, the behavioural science podcast where we discuss, explore and aim to showcase the practical benefits of layering behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth. Hosted by Pedro Martins, a director at Total Media, the behavioural planning agency. Remember to rate us on wherever you listen to podcasts and for any questions, feedback or requests for future topics, please email us at podcast at behave.co.uk. For more information on anything discussed in the episode and useful downloads, please visit behave.co.uk forward slash podcast. Welcome to Behave, the podcast that aims to showcase practical business benefits through the application of behavioural science to your marketing. Exploring the bias in the choice factory, I'm joined by the author Richard Chotton and Head of Behavioural Planning at Total Media Group and Behave Consultancy Will Hamner lloyd in this episode, we're going to be exploring the importance of expectation assimilation. Richard, can you uh, give us a bit more detail on the bias? It's essentially the idea that we experience what we expect to experience. So one of the most famous studies in the area is by Babashev, where he gives participants a range of wines at different price points. Now, unbeknown to those participants, two of the wines are exactly the same, but he tells people... They have a different price point. So first time they're told it costs $10, the second time it costs $90. But it's exactly the same liquid. And when they rate how much they like the wine, people are much more positive about the wine when they think it costs $90 than when they think it costs $10. So the argument there is because people think that uh, normally something that's more expensive is better quality, they look for those positive and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy now it doesn't just have to be price it's any way um, that you can set up this uh, expectation uh, that, that can work so it could be price it could be the copywriting around the product there's a slightly controversial psychologist called brian wansink who ran a study back in 2005 in a cafeteria in urbana illinois and on some occasions, the cafeteria labels particular foods in a very uh, stark, utilitarian way. So it might be seafood fillet. On other occasions, they'll label it in a far more grandiose, florid way. So it's succulent Italian seafood fillet. And he then asked people how nice the food tastes. And people have seen the uh, fancy uh, language rate the appeal and taste of the of the of the food about 10 to 13 percent higher so just as shifted with price one sink does it with copywriting that if you can get people to expect that the product's going to be great it's more likely to happen so you see you set expectations by the language you use to help drive that the language the serve the um uh, the, the positivity for the brand the price mm. there are lots of different ways to set up that expectation the, the core finding is that the, the more positive you create the expectation, people will then, when they experience the product, they'll be looking for positives. It's likely to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, Will, you've talked to me in the past about a few examples. Can you share them? I think a really interesting area with this is pain. Um, and Dan Hourley uh, did some really interesting studies in 2008 where students were given electric shocks and they were given painkillers. It was a, both placebos, uh, but told that one group was told it was $2.50, uh, another that it cost 10 cents. And they were then asked that with the painkiller, did they feel less pain? And 85% of those who had the $2.50 said they felt less pain, 
whereas only 61% of those who had the 10 cents painkiller said they felt less pain. And so the cost of the painkiller changed their experience of how much they felt pain, which is incredibly powerful. I think one interesting thing about this is even if you know a placebo is a placebo or it's not as impactful, it can still impact you. So when you pay £2.50 for Nurofen, even though you know the active ingredient is the same as the 30p ibuprofen, it will still reduce your pain more. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting that the way the brain works, even though you know something, the placebo and the expectation still impacts you. Um, there were two really interesting real-world elements of this I wanted to talk about. One was, this was in really important in Australia recently, where Nurofen got taken to court because they said that they had specific painkillers for things like back pain, and they would write back pain on it, or for back pain, and charge twice as much for the product, when in fact it was identical in terms of the active ingredients that would reduce your pain. They got taken to court, uh, and they argued that although there were no different active ingredients, the simple fact of telling people it was for their back and charging more would mean it would be more effective. They lost that court case... Uh, they were probably true to the science, but mm-hmm. probably not true to ethical messaging. Um, so it's interesting that it, it can have a real-world effect, but you do need to be careful about your application of it and how you use it. And on the same theme of being ethical, can you tell me about Bougies? So there's a, a nightclub in uh, West Kensington called Bougies, oh, uh, and they were in the news, famously, because their staff had been replacing expensive vodka with cheap vodka in the bottles and replacing expensive champagne with Prosecco. And for six months, the people who went to Bougie's didn't realise that this was happening. When they were given their glass of vodka or Prosecco instead of champagne, the expectation that it would be good because they'd paid so much they were in a fancy bar meant they tasted it as if it was good vodka (laughs) or high-quality champagne, showing that... Actually, that expectation means you can't realise when you're being served something much cheaper, much worse, because you experience what you expect to experience. And they only got caught when video cameras captured the staff doing this, rather than any customer complaining about the difference in taste. But Rich, it doesn't always work in the way that researchers or marketers expect it to, does it? There are some nuances in that it doesn't always have a positive effects or it doesn't always work in the way that the marketer might assume so one example of experiment I did a long time ago with lovely researcher called Rebecca Strong we were interested in what impact having an ecologically friendly product would have so very simple um, experiment design we recruited a group of families to take part and we sent all those families some washing machine tablets and they had to run, I think they got three each and they had to run three washes and report back on how white the white came out, how nice the clothes smell, how much they prepared to pay and other, other similar metrics. And the twist was that although everyone got the same tablet, half were told it was an ecologically friendly variant, half were told it was the standard variant. And then when we looked at people's responses people were rated the green variant as significantly worse. And what we think was happening was expectation assimilation, that in most walks of life, people think that there are trade-offs. 
So if you make the ecological footprint better, people assume the efficacy must get worse and therefore they went to look for those, um, those downsides and they found them. So in that particular instance, our recommendation was either if there's going to be a, a drop in efficacy, well, you're going to have to spend additional sums if you're going to launch a green variant to counterbalance that. Or when you, when you launch a green variant, if your sole interest is in improving the environment, why tell people? Why not just you know, keep it as a secret on the, uh, the label, the ingredients box? Because if people don't know that you've taken out some of the nasty chemicals, then they, they won't assume that things have got worse. Is, is that um, at odds of current thinking where actually consumers are seeking out more ethical, more green brands? How does that... Because I can see that that's sort of a dilemma. Yeah, so again, like we, we've discussed this in a few podcasts. I think, you know, when we, a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, choice paralysis, um, there was the discussion that, um, you know, the act of picking is not the same. It covers a lot of different scenarios. Well, I think the same is with green goods. You know, if it's about a detergent and a cleaner, there's probably a negative trade-off in people's minds because you think, well, all those negative, all those powerful chemicals are gone, so the stuff's going to be a little bit less effective. If it's a, um, you know, a green variant in another category completely then you know, maybe a particularly environmentally friendly food, we might think, there might mm. be positive connotations. So I think very context-specific. No, good point. Mm. There are examples. So there's a lot of competition amongst bottled water for who has the greenest packaging, recycled bottle, recyclable yeah, bottles. Yeah. But no one worries that the water is going to taste less good or be mm. any less fresh because the plastic container is recycled. Mm. So I think there are opportunities to amplify the greenness of your product when it doesn't affect the core functionality. For instance, an environmental washing up liquid to talk about fully reusable plastic in the bottle. And I don't think people would go, Mm. it will be a less effective washing up liquid. So it's whether the core of the product is affected by it or not. Great. And in terms of um, uh, longer term, so... There's a lot of conversations um, currently talking about the importance of brand building. What sort of impact does it have on the brands? So I think this is really interesting because what it shows is that we can fundamentally change people's experience of the product. It's not just that advertising can get people to buy something where they wouldn't. It can change how they experience it. Uh, And if you show people on TV ads of the product looking really good, people enjoying it, how great it is. When people come to have it, they will enjoy it. They will think it's great. And that does two things. One, that increases the likelihood of repeat purchase because if someone has had a better experience of the product, they will likely want to have it again. And secondly, it means that their price elasticity will be lower. They are likely to be able to pay more for the product because their experience of it will be better than other places. I think a good example of this is KFC versus other chicken shops. Now, potentially, KFC does have much tastier chicken, and the 14 herbs and spices are very unique to them. But also, potentially, a huge amount of advertising showing you how tasty it is, showing you the quality of it, showing you people enjoy it, mean that when you go into a KFC, you expect it, to be more enjoyable 
and better than when you go into other chicken shops. And so KFC are able to charge a price premium because people do enjoy their chicken more because they expect to enjoy the chicken more. And that can be an incredibly powerful long-term effect that you can do with branding that we often don't completely measure or understand. I have a feeling we'll cover this in another podcast, but um, I guess the the saying can be said for people like Coca-Cola, who constantly and continually advertise and spend fortunes in promoting Coca-Cola versus other Cokes, and actually no other Coke does seem to match up. That's my personal view, in case you want to sponsor the uh, podcast, Coca-Cola. <laughs> but um, I, think, I think it goes back to your point, Will, in terms of if they, by investing in and producing that and consistently reminding you of how good it is. Yeah, there's interesting neuroscience studies around Coke and Pepsi. So there's the famous Pepsi challenge, which is uh, when you don't know which brand is which, people seem to prefer Pepsi. And then when you do know which brand is which, people prefer Coke. And what's interesting is in neuroscience studies... Um, when people go to drink Coke and they know it's Coke, different parts of their brain, uh, I guess the phrase is fire up, um, and often it's the parts that are around reward or emotion in decision-making. Because they expect to enjoy the drink more, we can actually see parts of their brain enjoy it that we wouldn't see with Pepsi. Now, there is a debate around the extent to which that is a learned experience because they have previously enjoyed Coke, or that is because of the power of branding telling them that it's going to be really good. There are some interesting studies that suggest you can do this artificially with pricing, with the design of a bottle, and again you get these same neuroscience results that people's brains expect to enjoy it, and so we see they actually do. And I think this is really interesting because it means two things. One, not just that the change in expectation changes what people say they experience, it changes what they actually experience. Mm. And neuroscience means that you're having an incredibly powerful effect. Secondly, if you can commit to long-term branding and a constant quality brand presence, you can, like Coke, become a dominant player in your market, partly because you make people enjoy your product more and therefore drive repeat purchase, drive a greater price and become dominant because you change the experience of the product so that leads me on to what's the practical application then for for brands and clients and how how should they be applying this bias well first one might be we started with the babashiv experiment about price the implication for that would be for brands to be very careful about discounting and promotions in the if you run them too regularly you will train people to expect poor things from your brand. There's a lovely Martin Sorrell analogy of cholesterol. So he says, uh, advertising's like good cholesterol, promotions like bad cholesterol, that you can have it once in a while, but too much, and you'll start to see negative implications. And <laughs> no, then I think, it, as you say, the, <laughs> as, as Will's been talking about, it is a, I think it's a very strong argument for the investment in brand advertising. It's not our role is not just about getting people to try the product. It is by creating these positive expectations, it will actually change their enjoyment of the product. And frankly, if someone enjoys a product because of the chemical constituents or they enjoy the product because of their brand expectation, it's equally valuable to the consumer. Absolutely, Will. Um, so I'd say there's, uh, those are both really important and great points. One thing we've talked about before is launching products. 
And again, the, the value of having a premium placement when you launch, you at launch, you only get to make one first impression. And if you launch in a premium environment with strong branding, you can start that first impression really positively and therefore try and ensure that the first experience of your product is also positive and you're starting from a really strong base. If you try and push out too efficiently, too much in cheaper media, you might risk diminishing your brand and diminishing that first experience people have of it. So it's almost even more important for launches. The other thing I think that's really interesting here is we can start to research the way that we're impacting people's enjoyments of a product. If we can infer from the messaging what impact we're having on people, we can potentially infer how it's going to affect their consumption of a brand. So at Total Media, we often use biometrics, neuroscientific or neuromarketing techniques to understand what emotion people are having when they see the ads and therefore what emotion they will start to associate with the brand long term. And this can be a really interesting way to understand the long-term effect your advertising will have and the effect it may have not just on what people think of your brand, but how they experience it. Thanks, guys. So my take is that consumer experience is significantly impacted by what they expect to experience. And this can be incredibly powerful for companies as it means their messaging can not only get consumers to buy their brand, but can actually change and improve their experience of using that brand. And more importantly, helps drive repeat purchases and word of mouth. And as we've seen today, we've talked about Coke and KFC. If you invest long term in branding, you can create more enjoyment because of it. Yeah, that's, I think that's a, a brilliant summary. The only thing I would add, uh, and we didn't have a full chance to speak out today, so maybe we'll talk about it next time we catch up. But that second study that I talked about, so the Brian Wansink one. Oh, yeah, let's, talk, let's hear it now. Uh, okay, well, that's become slightly controversial because it seems that Wansink pressurised some of his grad students to come up with the right results so it didn't replicate. Now, this idea of results not replicating has become known as the replication crisis in, in psychology. And sometimes people use it as a reason not to use behavioural science. But I think that's a mistake for a couple of reasons. Firstly, what is what makes psychology and behavioural science a proper academic discipline is that people like Brian Nosek, who's been running um, a huge replication project, is that it's trying to weed out the um, fake or wrong findings. So by going and retesting a lot of original experiments and finding out which are genuine findings and which are false ones, then each year, as that happens, the body of knowledge that that, uh, behavioural scientists have becomes more and more robust. So I think you should look to the uh, the uncovering of some of these dubious studies, not as a negative thing, but as a proper science purging itself of false findings. And I think if marketing theory was in the same situation, you know, we'd be in a, we'd be yeah. in a better position of actually going and rerunning a lot of the classic studies. On that point, what's interesting is that potentially some of behavioural science decision theory, when it first started, was hoping to create this incredibly codified system of rules about how people behave what they do what we've seen is that such minor changes in context mood scenario can change the decisions that people do make Mm. and so sometimes the crisis of replication is not a dodgy academic trying to get the results they want 
it's the fact that in certain minor differences of context, you get different results. Yeah. Now, that's really important for two reasons. One, it shows us the importance of doing the research work to understand your category, understand your audience, understand the context of purchase so that you can appropriately use uh, behavioral science techniques and understand the nuance at play. Secondly, we've talked in a previous podcast about the importance of test and learn. And I think we're not looking for an absolute ironclad system of scientific rules. What we're looking for is potential ideas that can help our clients grow. And from that point of view, these things can be incredibly useful for giving us counterintuitive ideas or ideas we wouldn't have had to test. We can test them, and if they are successful, they can lead to massive success that we wouldn't have otherwise had. And so it's about understanding the potential power of these ideas, properly applied and tested, can get you to really successful solutions. And I think that's the important thing to understand, not that occasionally different changes in context mean that experiments aren't always repeated exactly the same result. Brilliant. Will, Richard, thank you again. Fantastic talk. And uh, before we go, as promised, if you want to win a signed copy of Richard Shotton's book, please remember to rate us on whatever platform you're listening to and we'll pick a winner at the end of every week. Will, Richard, thanks again and until next week. This podcast is brought to you by Total Media, the behavioural planning agency, an innovative approach to behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth.